0: why don't we start? So homework's due. If you didn't turn in your homework yet, here it is. Um, there's a new homework that's due a week from today, and there's a test a week from today. So I posted a practice exam online. It's actually the exam that I gave the last time I taught this class, so it should be pretty close in style and form and length See what uh, next week's exam will be like. So I suggest you do it. Um, I suggest you time yourself. It will be open book, open note. So you have whatever resources, <clears throat> whatever resources you bring with you to class, you have available to you. Um, and it's focused on conceptual understanding. So there's not a lot of calculations on it, um, but questions asking you to explain things, explain the difference between a three and a four level laser, um, explain why this detector is good for this type of measurement. Um, so you should come prepared to explain things. Um, the homework that we do this week will be good. It will be on the midterm. Okay, so the content of what we talk about today um, and up till today will be covered on the midterm. The homework focuses on detectors, so things we talked about uh, earlier in the week and that we'll talk about today. Okay, so last time we talked about all the different detectors that you might use for detecting the irradiance of a light field. And today we're going to talk about the ways you detect the wavelength. And so, just to put this into perspective, I'll remind you of what sort of our canonical experiment would look like. We'll have some light source over here, and it's shining into some material and then the light that comes through is detected or maybe the light that's either scattered or re-emitted via fluorescence is detected and generally what we do is we tune the frequency of this light source this light source being a laser and then we measure the intensity from either of these detectors as a function of the frequency of the light source and we generate either an emission spectrum or we generate an absorption spectrum. And this is a useful plot if it's an irradiance or an intensity as a function of frequency. And so typically the way you would do this is as you tune the frequency, Point by point, you measure a value that you will end up plotting, but of course you need to know what frequency that corresponds to so you know where to plot it on this curve. Now, very few lasers have a dial that will give you a direct readout of the frequency. Typically you need to measure the frequency, and so you could have some pickoff here and send some of the light to a device, which I'll just draw as a black box, which measures the wavelength or the frequency of the laser. So today we're going to talk about what that block what options you have for this black box. So there's two classes of devices that we can use, spectrometers and interferometers. Neil? What do you do if the material Is not optically transparent? It's not optically transparent. That means it's absorbing. Yeah. And if it's absorbing, That usually means that there's atomic transitions in the frequency range that you're interested in. Well, if you have a a, um, rare, what would you say, a non-dense, a rarefied enough sample here, then it will be transparent. You can always thin out the material by reducing its density. So if it's a gas, you just reduce the pressure until you get transparency. Um, Or you may need to prepare the sample. To make it transparent. And we'll talk about sort of more sophisticated techniques later on where you, um, you know, convert some of the population into a different energy level so that you can do um, experiments for the absorption of fluorescence from that energy level. And um, you may be able to get light in to interrogate that energy level that would not be, that this sample would not be transparent. The sample would be transparent for, whereas the light that would interrogate, say, the ground state, um, might not be transparent. So we'll deal with that later in the class. Okay, so let's start with, um, sort of historically, what the first device was to separate light into wavelengths and measure those wavelengths, and it was the prism, just a glass piece cut into a uh, triangular profile. And just due to Snell's law, we know that light going into this prism is going to get bent when it comes out, and typically glass is dispersive. So the index of refraction is a function of wavelength, and that means the angle that the light gets bent ends up as a function of wavelength. And a prism spectrometer might look like this. This is a very um, this is an antique here, but what we have is essentially a telescope here and a telescope there and so light that comes into this telescope gets collimated and illuminates the prism, it gets bent and this telescope can be moved around um, on this stage until the light is focused through the telescope and is observed by an observer and then you can read off on this stage what angle the light is bent at. And So you can calibrate this and relate an angle to a wavelength. So here's a, a schematic of that Um, A couple things that you generally do is you take the input light and you put it through a slit, and that lets you treat the input as essentially a point source, or actually a line source. In this case, everything that we've drawn here um, is translationally symmetric out of the page. So uh, The prism is usually uh, an extruded triangle, so our point source is an extruded point, which is a line. And what that does is it allows the image of the slit in the telescope to be a line as opposed to a bright blob. And so you can more accurately determine the the angular position of that line by constraining the the size of your source. So we'll talk about how to optimize the size of this uh, slit, the size of this prism, And what effect those choices have on the resolving power of this device. The resolving power tells you um, how well it can resolve different wavelengths. Resolving power is one over the resolution of the device, the the minimum wavelength difference that it can detect. Okay, So some of the properties that are going to go into this optimization are what's called the speed of the device. We'll define that in a minute. The spectral transmission... So what frequencies get through, and the resolving power, how well it can differentiate different frequencies. Akiri? Speed means angular um, acceptance angle, it doesn't mean temporal response. Okay. So, more typically, modern spectrometers uh, are more likely to be based off of gratings instead of prisms. But the idea is the same. A grating is a device which diffracts light, and the diffraction angle is a function of wavelength. And as a result, the diffracted light has dispersion in it. It has an angular dependence, or an angle that depends on wavelength. And so this can be used just like a prism spectrometer, just with a grating instead of a prism. Typically, a grading spectrometer is entirely built in reflection. So instead of having lenses, we have curved mirrors here, which, focus the, which take the focused input light and illuminate the grating, and then focus that light back to a detector. You can see the input and output slits. And now, in this diagram where we've got a source, being focused down through the input slit being collimated and sent onto the grating and then coming off the grating at an angle that depends on the wavelength um, this mirror focuses the light down to a point at this slit and if the light doesn't go through the slit, if it's imaged either too high or too low, then there will be nothing detected but as the grating is tilted that spot will move the grating can be tilted um, to change the position of that spot to a point where it transmits, and when it does, the tilt of the grating can be used to determine the wavelength. And so, typically, these will have either a dial or a computer control, where the grating is on a stage; it can be tilted. There's a detector here, and radiance on this detector will be plotted as a function of the angle of the grating as it's tilted. That's how it would work under computer control. If this is just a black box with no computer hookup, you probably have a dial that you can turn to crank this grating and then you have to, may have to supply your own detector here. Usually you tilt the grating until you get light coming through and then you read out either an angle or if it's already calibrated you read out a wavelength from some dial that's connected to the, uh, the tilt stage. Um, so uh, is for any input we're going to have it on S2? So if this were white light, then we have white light coming to here. What we have coming out of here is a spectrum. And so we see essentially uh, a rainbow here. We see a spectrum. And as we move as we tilt the grating, we're going to move that spectrum up and down. Okay. And so at any point, there's going to be a different wavelength that's, or a wavelength region reaching this detector. And if the system is calibrated properly, that will correspond to a number on a dial that changes as we tilt that grating. So both of these methods can be visible right? No, they can, do, uh, they can work outside the visible re- re- region. If this detector, so what would limit it in the, grade, or in the prism, what limits it is the transparency of the prism, the glass. Um, and in this case, what limits this is probably the uh, response of the detector. So one of the reasons grating spectrometers are used, is, and one of the reasons why they have mirrors instead of lenses, is a grating is a reflective device, so light doesn't need to go through it. And one of the limitations of glass is it absorbs ultraviolet light why you don't get a suntan when you're in your car so prism spectrometers aren't useful for ultraviolet regions of the spectrum but a grading spectrometer can be and that's why there's no transmissive elements here you can see a lens, there's a lens in this diagram out here but that's not part of the spectrometer that's part of the input source okay so this is some of the same Instrumental properties that we'll talk about As the prism spectrometer The speed, the spectral transmission The resolving power And it also has one that isn't relevant To the prism spectrometer called the free spectral range And it tells you um, What range of wavelengths You can measure unambiguously So we'll define all these properties And look at each one And how they can be optimized And what trade-offs they introduce Okay, so a grading Is just some periodic structure that causes interference when illuminated with when illuminated with plane waves the interference from the secondary sources on each grating tooth will add up constructively in one particular direction and that direction is a direction such that each successive tooth has an integer number of wavelengths path length difference when the light from the incident wave travels to where the transmitted wave is. So an integer number of wavelengths is obviously wavelength-dependent. For one wavelength, you may have uh, constructive interference at a particular angle, but if the wavelength changes, the angle needs to change such that the path length difference to each tooth stays an integer number of wavelengths so I'm not going to derive that but the result of that is given by this grading equation it relates the incident angle so that's the angle of the incident light measured with respect to the normal to the macroscopic surface and the grading itself may have a microscopic lines that are blazed at a particular angle but the normal is measured with respect to this macroscopic surface not the microscopic surface Um, So that's the incident angle, the diffracted angle, which I call theta m, there can be several different diffracted angles if you have a multi-order grading. So the zero order diffracted angle is this one and it, it looks like reflection off of a smooth surface. And So we'd call that theta zero and that corresponds to m equaling zero on the right, m is an integer and physically what it represents is how much path length difference there is between light scattering off of one tooth and the next tooth and so if m equals 0 this behaves just like a mirror if that equals 0, the incident angle has to equal the output angle just on opposite sides of the normal, which is the law of reflection for m equals plus or minus 1 you get diffracted light at some additional angle or some reduced angle and you might have higher order diffraction as well. This grading might support an M equals minus 2 order which would be over here and then the M equals minus 3 order might be at an angle greater than 90 degrees which isn't real or isn't physical so there's a limit to how many orders you can get from a grading. You can see that by If the the sign of each of these angles can be no greater than one. Right? So the term on the left side can be no greater than two. So the term on the right side, if it's greater than two, then you don't get diffraction. So if n times lambda over d is greater than two, you wouldn't have diffraction. And you wouldn't have theta sub m. Yes. So you think of like Huygens' principle tells you that uh, you can imagine a wave illuminating the surface as exciting secondary wavelets, like little point sources that are all in phase along these surfaces, and those emit spherical waves that add up coherently in a particular direction. Okay, and there's different directions that which they will add up coherently. Well how is it in the Um yeah. So, just imagine a series of point sources. Maybe those would be the point sources represented by the tip of each tooth. Okay. So, and let's say they're illuminated from normal at normal incidence, so they're all excited in phase, and so they're each going to radiate a little wave that's in phase, and so certainly. Um, they will produce constructive interference for a wave front that's propagating normal direction. So, when they've each produced a wave that's had a chance to travel a certain distance, um, those wave fronts will add up constructively and produce a plane wave front that's moving like that. But you also get a situation. let me see if I can draw it, Um, where these are successive wave fronts produced by this source. And the wave fronts produced by this source can add up like here you have two wave fronts that are in phase. Here you have a point where there might be one wavelength away from this point and two wavelengths away from that one, or, or one more wavelength away from this point than that one. So you'll get constructive interference of those two waves. And as you go to the far field, there's an angle at which if you draw the wave fronts of a wave propagating at that angle. Each one of these points, each one of these grating teeth is one wavelength apart. And so there's going to be another angle, maybe where they're like, not quite drawing it properly to scale, but trying to draw one where they're two wavelengths apart at a different angle so there would be different orders and then if the wavelength see if if you look at just the first order um, in order for a wave in this direction to add up coherently its wave fronts need to be closer together than a wave that's in that direction so this light at a shorter wavelength will diffract like this, whereas light at a longer wavelength would diffract like that. So, you know what, we can talk about it after class, but I think this is a bit of a, a, if we can take this equation for the moment as a given. I think it will be useful in, in understanding a lot of the properties of the spectrometer and then if you have questions about the, the grading we can go back and address them. Okay, A um, couple interesting things about this if you arrange this so that the incident angle is the same as the diffracted angle that means the light comes in and you'll have the, the specular reflection it's always going to obey the law of reflection but the first order diffracted beam which is the minus first order can be arranged so that it goes straight back and And retro-reflects. In this diagram, if I just tilt the grating this way a little bit, all these angles will tilt a corresponding amount. And when I arrange it properly, I can get this first order, this minus first order diffracted angle to be the same as the incident angle. So then sine theta in equals sine theta m and I can say that the incident angle equals M lambda over 2D. And that's called the litro configuration. And in this configuration, where the incident angle equals this expression, you'll get light retroreflected. So you can use this as a mirror in a laser cavity, for instance, that will retroreflect light of a specific wavelength. So once you've established the incident angle of the light, only one particular wavelength will obey this Littrow configuration. So only one particular wavelength will get retroreflected. So you can use this as a wavelength-dependent mirror. Okay, so let's look at some of the properties of a spectrometer. And it really doesn't matter whether we're talking about a grading or a prism spectrometer for this first one. Uh, the spectrometer speed... Speed is a term in optics which has a couple different meanings. There's obviously temporal speed, the speed of light, things like that. Um, But on cameras, we have, uh, this is leftover from the old days, but there were two adjustments you could make on a camera to set the exposure level. One is you could open up the iris to let more light in, and the other is you could change the uh, exposure time. Right, so having a short exposure time lets you capture sharp images of fast-moving things, less blurry. So if you want a shorter exposure time, but you have a certain amount of light that needs to reach your film, you need to open up the iris and let more light in. Okay, so letting more light in is referred to as being fast. An optical system that lets in a lot of light is considered a fast optical system, because if it's used in a camera, it lets you take pictures of things that are moving faster. Okay, so that. Terminology is used for spectrometers, although it really has nothing to do with temporal characteristics of the uh, device at all. Okay, so specifically the speed refers to the solid angle, the acceptance angle of the light measured as a solid angle, the acceptance angle of the instrument. So here's a slit in the prism spectrometer diagram that I showed before and the basic idea is some light source gets imaged through that slit collimated, illuminates the prism and then gets um, gets focused by a telescope to an, by an, and observed by an observer and they can move this telescope around to change the angle or they may change the prism angle to tune what wavelength is is passing through to the observer. Now, I've drawn some orange lines here that cross, that show, that give some indication of what the acceptance angle of this device is. If light comes in and it's tightly focused, such that it has a large solid angle coming into the slit, um, if that solid angle is larger than the solid angle subtended by this first lens, some of the light is going to miss that lens. Right, and that's not going to make it through the device, and it's not going to contribute to the measurement. So there's a limit to how large of a solid angle a device can accept. Um, having light focused too tightly means when you, when you focus light, the tighter you focus it, the, the larger the solid angle. So, if here's a, consider two lenses, and light coming in to what we'd call a fast lens that focuses the light very tightly, or a slow lens, which has a longer focal length. The size of the focal spot is always going to be smaller with the faster lens. So this solid angle right here is greater than this solid angle. So if the light is focused too strongly. Through a greater solid angle than the uh, acceptance angle of the instrument, it has two things can happen. One is you lose not all of the light that you're producing from this light source is going to make it here. So you're going to have less light available for your measurement. But that light may find its way onto the detector by scattering off of some surface over here or um, otherwise just producing background light. So it may reduce the contrast for the detector and reduce your, well, just basically add noise. So knowing the acceptance angle of the instrument lets you prepare the light that's going in for optimal performance. If the solid angle is too small, such that the light isn't that spread out here it's not going to illuminate the full size of the prism and as we'll see in a couple slides, the resolving power of this instrument depends on how much of the prism you illuminate. So you generally want to illuminate as much of it as possible. So matching the solid angle of the input light to the acceptance angle of the uh, prism spectrometer is important for using it with optimal performance. Okay, so if this prism has a an area A prime, okay, so the face might have an area A, but when viewed at an angle, we're going to call that an area A prime. So it's going to be reduced by the cosine of the uh, angle of the surface relative to the incident beam then the acceptance angle is A prime over F squared okay, so this spot size at this lens should be no, longer, no larger than A prime and it's being focused from a distance F away and so that is a solid angle of A prime over F squared and so solid angle is the size of a spot on a sphere divided by R-squared. This is particularly important when using laser beams. Laser beams generally are nicely collimated so that it's tempting just to send the light directly through the slit because you can. You don't need to focus it down to a spot the way you would with with an incoherent source. Um, the problem with that is you're going to have a very small spot then on the prism and as I mentioned that's not going to take full advantage of the resolving power of the device so you can focus the light and spread it out and then focus it back down so that you illuminate the whole area or what's often easier is you just put essentially a piece of paper over the slit and when it hits that paper it just scatters you use the scattering as your, as your source. Another property that's of of relevance is the spectral transmission so what wavelengths the device will work at and in the prism spectrometer I mentioned that's usually limited by the transparency range of the materials so we can look at a few different types of a few different frequency ranges um, and what materials are suitable in the ultraviolet most optical materials are opaque so lithium fluoride or calcium fluoride can be used. But typically, if you're dealing with ultraviolet, you would use uh, diffraction gratings. You don't have to deal with getting the light through through transmissive optics. Um, in the visible and near-infrared, and even the... Not quite out to the mid-infrared, but far into the near-infrared. Um, fused quartz, it's the typical... Typical glass material that you would buy from a uh, optics manufacturer can be used. There's no special uh, effort that needs to be taken in the visible region. In the mid-infrared, 3 microns to 10 microns, there's absorption from molecular vibration and rotation. We saw this with the carbon dioxide laser had transition at 10.6 microns so carbon dioxide is a gas that's in the atmosphere that absorbs at 10.6 microns water vapor has a ton of absorption lines between 3 and 10 microns and so gas so the air typically is water vapor so even if your optics are transparent if you're doing mid-infrared spectroscopy the air in your instrument might not be so unless you're trying to do this measure the spectrum of the air in your instrument you need to either evacuate it or more typically just purge it with nitrogen or some, some gas that doesn't have that, um, that problem so further out into the infrared um, you can use various materials calcium fluoride, sodium chloride potassium bromide um, as your optics but metal mirrors become very efficient In the infrared Um, so you can get very high reflectivity with just simple metal mirrors so typically those are used with gratings so gratings are typically used in the infrared and the ultraviolet Um, they can be used in the the visible as well but there's a few other options with, with prism spectrometers in the visible Okay, another property that I mentioned was the spectral resolving power. That's that's related to what's the smallest change in wavelength the device can detect. It's one over it's one over that. So the resolving power is given by the wavelength of interest divided by the smallest wavelength around that that can be resolved. And we're going to investigate this and and what effect it has in the parameters of this device. And we're going to start with the diffraction pattern for a uniformly illuminated slit of width A. And without deriving it, I'll state that diffraction pattern. The irradiance coming out of a slit of uh, width A is a function of angle. So what that means is, here's a slit... As some width A. It's illuminated uniformly. And due to diffraction, the light spreads out. And essentially what we get is a, is a beam with some spread on it. And in the far field, if we image this on a screen, we get... pattern that looks like this it's the diffraction pattern of a slit and it's given by this expression so this expression is given as a function of angle so that's basically this pattern mapped into angular space instead of transverse space and so for small angles sine theta is approximately equal to theta and we can write this as sine of some quantity divided by the quantity. That term appears a lot in optics, and so it's given a special term. It's called the sinc function. So sinc just means sinc of x is sine x over x. And it looks well. It looks like what I drew up here. So this this is a sinc squared function. It's always positive. Okay, so if this is the intensity distribution is a function of angle then we can ask how wide is that beam? what is the angular width? and so the sinc function has a maximum at zero It's sine of zero over zero and then it has its first null, its first zero when the argument of this equals pi And the argument of that equals pi and we have sine of pi over pi sine of pi is zero so if we set this term in parentheses equal to pi we find that the angle at which that happens is lambda over a so theta is lambda over a this argument becomes pi and that's where this first zero is so it's worth We're going to use that expression quite a bit, so it's worth uh, putting that up on the board. This angle is lambda over a. So that tells you how much the beam is spreading out after it goes through a slit. And we have a slit right here at the entrance. And so if the beam spreads out, with that angle over a distance f, the focal length of this collimating lens then its width at that lens will be f lambda over a. Okay, So that's a general result and we'll now apply it to this slit, this lens, this prism, this lens And finally, the output in sequence. Okay, so first we have a slit here of width B. It's not... I wish that were drawn in the slide, and it's not, so let me draw it here. Slit of width B, a lens of focal length F1 a prism or a grating. A lens of focal length f2 and then a slit over here. And maybe a, well, I'll draw it as a slit. And then there's some effective aperture width for this prism that I'll call A. So A is the The size of the prism, transverse size of the prism projected onto the direction that the light is going. Okay, so using our result, if the light going through this slit, which has a width b, spreads out at an angle lambda over b, after it's traveled the distance f1, the distance from the slit to this first lens, then it's spatial extent will be delta x is f1 lambda over b this is a this is like the half width here so that's the size of the light at that collimating lens that's half of it yeah and then that spot getting focused by the second lens of focal length f2 has a diffraction pattern if we think about a spot over here of width delta x having a spread in space, a spread of lambda over delta x when it gets focused by this lens and travels a distance f2 its width is going to be f2 times lambda over delta x so that's the spot size out here. And so if we combine these two things um, and plug in for delta X F1 lambda over B, we get that the output image of the slit has a size that depends on the, image, on the size of the slit and the ratio of the focal lengths of the two lenses that collimate and then focus the light. So that's the diffraction, that's entirely due to the frac- diffraction of this from this slit getting focused by two lenses. Now there's an additional contribution to the final size of the output that comes from um, the finite width of this prism. Okay? so the, the prism may have a fi- finite width, we didn't consider that in the first analysis, but if it has a finite width of width A, Then the diffraction pattern for an um, aperture of width A is going to be, it's going to have a width of lambda over A. And when it gets focused by lens F2, or by lens 2, it will have a spot size at the focus of F2 lambda over A. So we just keep applying this, this general result for a slit width, a slit having a diffraction pattern, traveling uh, one focal length to a lens, at which point it's focused. And so this is the diffraction due to the prism, this is the diffraction due to the original slit, and the total spot size has to be at least as large as the sum of these two diffractions. If it equals that, if there's no aberrations in the system, we'd say it's diffraction-limited. You hear that term a lot. If there's aberrations that cause the spot to be larger than that theoretical minimum, then that inequality will still hold. Okay, so we're almost there. If we know the spot size at the output, we can use that to figure out then how much the wavelength of the light needs to change for the image to move by at least that spot size. And that will be our criteria for what the minimum resolvable wavelength is. Okay, so if we're calling that minimum resolvable wavelength delta lambda, or the, Yeah, so our prism will have some dispersion which we'll just write as a change in angle as a function of wavelength. That's the function of the prism, is to change the angle dependent on the wavelength. And so if we can write how much that change of angle is as a function of wavelength, then when we multiply it by our wavelength resolution, that will give us an angular resolution. That angular resolution times F2, the focal length, is how much that spot moves so if you change something by a certain angle and it travels a distance F2 it's moved up and down by an amount F2 times that angle so that's how much the spot will move at the output due to a change in wavelength and that needs to be at least as large as our diffraction-limited spot size okay, so... The resolving power of the spectrometer is lambda over delta lambda. So we can take this expression, um, this expression related to that expression and solve for lambda over delta lambda. And we call that the resolving power you can see it has this term here which depends on the diffraction causes the spot to get larger that's in the denominator in the numerator we have a term that depends on the dispersion which causes the output light to move around as a function of wavelength what you want is large dispersion small diffraction that would give you good resolving power so you want this term in the denominator to be small So one thing that you typically have control over is the slit width. And on most spectrometers, there's a little micrometer that you can turn that will move the two sides of the slit in and out. So you can control the slit width. So if you set the slit width to zero, then you've minimized the size of the denominator, you've maximized the resolution, and that maximum resolution then is going to be 1 over A, the minus one, which is just A times d theta over d lambda and those are all properties of the prism A is the size of the prism as seen by the light coming in at an angle and d theta d, d, theta, d lambda is related to this, the dispersion of the prism directly through Snell's law Okay, so this is why you need the, the light to illuminate a large portion of the prism Well, the problem is if b equals zero, you're not letting any light in. So you've got great resolving power and no light. Okay, so we're going to see that although that's a theoretical maximum, it can never be achieved. And there's a practical maximum right here that says, since we don't want the input light to be, so as we tighten and tighten b and make it smaller and smaller, we're spreading out the diffraction pattern. We don't want it to spread out so much that it exceeds the size of that lens that's we mentioned that before if your input light exceeds the speed or the input acceptance angle of your instrument you're just contributing background light so you don't want that so there's a minimum size for b that gives you a diffraction pattern that equals either the diameter of this lens or um, more likely the size of this area you can always it's pretty easy to get bigger lenses prisms in order to get a bigger prism you also need a wider prism and that Increases the amount of glass And so there's limitations usually Come into play in how big a prism you can get So If you're limited by the size of the prism Then The half width Of your beam Is um, Lambda The half angular width is lambda over b The half Spatial width is lambda Over b times f And if you want that to equal half of A, then the minimum value for B that you can have is given by this expression. 2 lambda F1 over A. That value for B will give you a spot size at the prism that's equal to the prism size. So if you plug this in here, um, you get... 2 over a you get 1 over a plus 2 over a which gives you a practical resolving limit of the maximum divided by 3 okay um, let's see the next slide I derive this what d-theta, d-lambda is in terms of the index of refraction. Um, I'm going to skip some of the math here and just point out that light going through a prism gets deviated by an amount that depends on the geometry of the prism, geometry of these angles, and the dispersion of the material. You can work out the geometry of... um, Epsilon being the apex angle, alpha being the incident angle, and theta being the deviation angle. So how much the output light deviates an angle from the direction of the input light. And you can can work out that the input angle is given by this expression. So that's alpha equals theta plus epsilon over 2 the angle in the material, the transmitted angle, is epsilon over 2 so this is Snell's law at the interface and then differentiating the left and right side allows us to get a relationship between d theta and dn so when you differentiate the left side you get the cosine of this term times the d theta when you differentiate the right side, you get this times the dn so you can rewrite this for d theta d lambda in terms of dN, d lambda. So this is a material property. This is a geometric property of the prism. It depends on the angle of the prism. And the value theta is called the minimum deviation angle. And you can work through it a little bit and find that you can write and write this effective size of the prism A as a function of the the length of the base as well as some of the the angles that you're illuminating it with and when you combine all of these these terms um, our value of d theta by d lambda which was on the previous slide is right here and then um, the value of A, which is given by this expression right here. All these geometrical terms cancel, and you get that the maximum resolving power depends on the base of the prism, the size of the base times dN d lambda. So our expression, g, g is a, a width, it's a length. So r, is so r is, well, r is going to be unitless. We have a length over a length times a unitless quantity. And it should be unitless because it's uh, the wavelength you're measuring divided by the wavelength. Yeah. So if we compare that expression to what we had two slides before, this was an expression for the effective area of the prism seen by the light and then the angular dispersion of the prism where this expression depends on the base of the prism and the material dispersion so these are all things that you would know when you purchase a prism that don't depend that, I mean, getting the maximum resolving power assumes that you use the prism properly at the, it's called the minimum deviation angle where the, the effect of the dispersion is largest but it doesn't contain any terms which depend on the orientation of it in your experiment. Neil, did you have a question? Okay. okay so this is again saying that in order to get good resolving power out of a prism, you're limited by the size of the prism, and typically the cost limits how big of a chunk of glass you can have uh, in the device. Also, d n d lambda. Do you remember from our homework on the classical electron oscillator model? Uh, we had to compute, I think we had to compute the index of refraction as a function of wavelength. And if anyone remembers, it looks like... Uh, Actually, this is it's drawn backwards. But the index of refraction, this is, the fact that it's not constant as a function of wavelength is what's called dispersion, and it gives rise to this dnd lambda. And the dispersion is a maximum in this region here near an atomic resonance. So you can always operate closer to an atomic resonance to increase the dispersion, but in the process, you also increase the absorption. Remember, this was the real part of the index. The imaginary part, which was proportional to the absorption coefficient, had peaks near these absorption lines. And so, that's going to limit how long of a prism you can make or how how much glass your material can go through. So you see there's all these trade-offs. So you can look these quantities up for different materials. Um, And so they're typically given as a function of wavelength. So there's a particular dispersion at a particular wavelength because at different wavelengths the slope of this line is changing. We can compare that to the angular dispersion of a grating. That's a little easier to follow or to to find because we've got this expression that's already in terms of angle and wavelength angular dispersion is how much the angle changes as a function of wavelength, so we just need to differentiate um, both sides of this. This side will differentiate with respect to the the diffraction angle, this side will differentiate with respect to lambda, and that gives us the change in the output angle as a function of wavelength is m over d cosine theta. So d was the the groove spacing on the grating, Remember, M is the diffraction order, so it's an integer. So clearly what this says is for higher order diffraction, you get more dispersion or more um, angular deviation as a function of wavelength. And so we have a similar expression for the maximum resolving power. This is actually taken from our derivation for the prism. It depends on the the effective area of this grating that the illumination sees. So if it's coming in at an angle, it's the width of this grating uh, times cosine of the incident angle. So that's the area d theta, d lambda was just calculated up here. And it's useful to write the effective area as the this term nd, I'll explain in a minute would be the width of the grating that's illuminated times cosine of the of the angle of the of the light and now this width we can write as some number n of of grating lines that are illuminated each of a width d If there's n lines illuminated and each one is a distance d apart, then the area or the the width that's illuminated is n times d. The reason it's useful to express it that way is d theta dm has a 1 over d in it. And if we write the value for a with a d in it, then the d's cancel. So when we plug in this expression here, and this expression here. We get a a nice simple expression for the maximum resolving power that is m times n. The diffraction order times the number of grooves that are illuminated. How do you increase the diffraction order? Well, your grating will have a certain pitch, a certain value for d. That's a function that's just a property of the grating you're illuminating with a certain wavelength and depending on how big the wavelength is compared to D you may have more than one diffraction order so if you do then there will be several beams coming out of the grating you can just choose which one you use So you can build your spectrometer around any of these with a slit here such that here we're using the second diffracted order. If we tilt the grating such that this beam goes through the slit, then we're using the first diffracted order. Okay, so there's an advantage to using a higher diffracted order, and there's a, an advantage to illuminating as much of the grating as possible. It gives you better resolving power. Well it comes to if this base has a length A then this, this term, I'm sorry, not A, if this has a base, let's say, of width W, A was the width as seen by light coming in at an angle. And if it's coming in at an angle, this width is pro- projected onto that angle is W cosine theta. And why is theta? And not theta? Yeah, I was just trying to figure that out when I was, when I was saying it on the board. Um, because gratings are a little funny when they're used away from litro angle so let me take a grating illuminate it at normal incidence with a round spot okay if i look from a top view the spot on that grating is going to look like a circle Um, and let's say that spot has a width w now the diffracted light is going to come off at some angle and so the beam profile in that direction actually gets compressed so this circle essentially if you can think of it when viewed from an angle looks like an ellipse from the direction of the diffracted beam the region of this grating that's illuminated looks elliptical and one side gets compressed by an amount theta m by cosine theta m so this width is w cosine theta m That's the output beam, and that's what diffracts, producing a spread in my output spot. Um, If that that drawing isn't clear, do you consider a ray coming in on one end of the spot and a ray coming in on the other end? imagine the diffracted angle goes to 90 degrees, clearly these two rays will collapse on top of each other and the width of the beam would be zero. So a circular spot going into a grating does not come out circular, it comes out elliptical. And it's the output light that we're concerned with because that's what produces the spread on the beam and that's why we use a uh, theta sub n there. Okay, so Using a higher diffraction order is one way to improve the resolution of the device, but just like we had with the prism spectrometer, we run into an issue there. Um, This time, the issue is one of free spectral range. So the term free spectral range means how much variation can you have in the wavelength and unambiguously resolve it. So a free spectral range can be given in terms of wavelength or in terms of frequency. How much can the wavelength or how much can the frequency change? Okay. So let's consider a grating that has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven real diffracted orders when illuminated at normal incidence going to have one retroflex. So the 0 plus 1 plus 2 plus 3 minus 1 minus 2 and minus 3. If I put a slit right here and a photo detector behind that slit and now I consider what happens to let's say a uh, green light It's also diffracted. The two wavelengths in my incident beam, I'm representing them as red and green. They both get diffracted. And I want to tilt this grating to steer, say, this first order diffracted spot across my slit. And as I tilt it, I'll see the green light go through, then I'll see the red light go through, I'll see two peaks. If I plot those as a function of angle, I'll get a spectrum that, that has two frequency components to it. Now if I continue to tilt it, eventually this zeroth order term is gonna go through. Right? And it's not going to be clear whether that's the zeroth order term or that's a wavelength out here somewhere in like the infrared get aliasing so there's a limited tuning range I can have before I can't tell the difference between um, one beam and another so let me say let me imagine these frequencies are separated by one free spectral range what that means is the first order diffracted beam that's green is collinear with the second order diffracted red beam that's the case, if I detect this light, I don't know whether it's the first order green or the second order red. Right. So the wavelength at which um, the nth order, or order of one beam has the same angle as the m plus 1th order of another beam, that wavelength difference is the free spectral range. And it limits how broad of a spectrum you can measure with this device. It's not an issue with the prism spectrometer, because a prism spectrometer only has one output order, but because this has multiple orders, um, that is an issue. And the free spectral range decreases as you go to higher and higher diffraction orders. So the higher and higher diffraction orders are spaced closer together, and as a result there's less and less angular tilt that you can have within one free spectral range. So that free-spectral range is given by lambda over m plus 1. And for a prism, a prism is like having a free-spectral range where m equals 0. We're using the 0th order. Okay, so in the homework next week, you'll work out some of these terms. Like, you'll derive, I think you derived this formula. Um, So, let me talk about some of the issues you have with spectrometers. I think next time we'll talk about interferometers. Um, Maybe you can help me out. What are some of the advantages of a prism spectrometer to a grating spectrometer? You You don't have as many orders. So how does that? Yes, there's no issue with the free spectral range. Another way of saying it, the free spectral range is is as large as the wavelength you're measuring. So there's never any unambiguity. Um, that's pretty much it. There's no unambiguity. There's no ambiguity about the measured wavelength. Uh, what's some, what are some of the disadvantages? The size of the prism may become uh, expensive. What's that? Yeah. So the, the, just having to transmit through a material limits the, the spectral range which you can use. So the transmissive optics can limit the range over which you operate. So in a grading spectrometer, what are the advantages of using a high order diffraction uh, diffracted beam high value for M so higher resolving power means better resolution which would be expressed as a smaller wavelength uh, resolution and what's the disadvantage of using a higher diffraction order yeah the free spectral range decreases, and this is something that we're going to see with interferometers. Um, a grating is essentially—it's a spatial interferometer. The diffracted light comes from the interference of light that diffracted off of each tooth of the grating. Okay, and the resolving power—the maximum resolving power was M N, which is essentially the maximum path length difference between the light that's scattered off of one tooth versus the light that's scattered off of the other tooth. Okay. Each successive tooth adds m wavelengths of path length difference. So if there's n teeth. This is the number of wavelengths of path length difference. And what we'll see next time is that an interferometer takes light, it splits it into multiple beams, They can travel in different physical paths that can have widely varying path lengths. And when they get recombined, the resolution that we'll have, or the the interference pattern that we'll see, depends on the path length difference relative to the wavelength. The the phase difference of the beams is going to depend on the physical path length difference divided by the wavelength. So it will be wavelength dependent. So it will be a, a, a... a parameter that can be used to infer changes in wavelength and we'll see that for an interferometer as well its maximum resolution is given by the difference in path length of the two interfering beams or of the interfering beams and just like the prism just like the diffraction grating, it will have a free spectral range that then is inversely proportional to that uh, that quantity So, as I mentioned, interferometers can be used to discriminate against wavelengths. They combine beams that have traveled different paths, and those path lengths can be made arbitrarily different. So, on a tabletop, um, just placing two mirrors and, say, a Michelson interferometer, where you have light that's split, travels in two paths, and is recombined, even if you eyeball it and try to make these path lengths the same they're very likely going to differ on the order of a millimeter or so even if you use a ruler and try to make those path lengths the same they're typically going to differ by something on the order of a millimeter a millimeter is about a thousand wavelengths okay, so an interferometer like this can have a resolving power of on the order of a thousand without even trying essentially and as we increase the path length difference we can get on the order of a meter or so path length difference with no problem on a tabletop scale interferometer and that will lead to a resolving power on the order of 10 to the 6, 10 to the 7 so they can have excellent resolving power but that comes with a cost that means very small free spectral ranges Okay, because again um we consider Consider waves in the arms of the interferometer, and we consider, for example, um, what wavelengths would produce, a, produce constructive interference at the output. We'd require the path length difference between the two arms be some integer multiple of wavelengths. So there's a variety of wavelengths that can accommodate that, that have different, number, different integer number of wavelengths in the arms and the greater the path length difference between them is the smaller the wavelength difference needs to be in order for their phase difference to di- eventually drift by 2 pi well so, so the, the very close together i know they're, in theory, they're supposed to be one yeah so what happens is if you have a laser that has a narrow frequency width to it and you build a cavity and you send the light through the cavity Um, it's relatively straightforward to build a cavity that has a free spectral range that's much greater than the laser wavelength. So if you were to plot the intensity going through an interferometer as a function of frequency of the light for a Michelson interferometer that plot would look like this okay, there are certain frequencies where you get constructive interference, certain frequencies where you get destructive and then as you continue to change the frequency you get constructive interference again and this distance, if we plot this as a function of frequency, this distance is the free spectral range measured in frequency space? If we plot this as a function of wavelength, this distance would be the free spectral range in wavelength space. And while yes, you may have a laser that has a narrow frequency, so that if there's structure on the laser beam or you're tuning the laser over a small range, you may see. Um, you may be able to resolve that structure. You won't know the absolute wavelength of the. I mean, you're not making an absolute measurement of the laser wavelength. You can. You may be able to resolve different frequency components of the laser without knowing what their average frequency is. Um. And so, next time we'll talk about the interferometers. We'll describe these. Um, interferometer responses, we'll look at a Fabry-PRO interferometer, which is more sensitive than the Michelson, for doing this type of measurement, and then we'll see how this ambiguity arises, and we'll talk about the pre-spectral range and the, uh, the resolving power of interferometers.